Hello and welcome to another episode of the Menswear Style Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Brooker, and on this episode, I'm going to be talking to August Bard Bringeas, the co-founder of Asket. Asket, I hear you ask. <laughs> Sorry. Asket is an independent online-only menswear brand founded in 2015 with the mission to slow down the fashion industry and change the way we manufacture, market, and consume clothing. Based on honest production, transparent pricing, and revolutionary sizing, they are perfecting a single permanent collection of timeless essentials and restoring the meaningfulness of the garments that we actually use the most. So that interview coming up shortly. In the meantime, make sure you're checking out the website, menswearstyle.co.uk. That's where we put all the show notes, all the links to everything that we talk about on the show. Also, you have lifestyle features, travel features, what's going on with the brands right now during this crazy time. So make sure you're checking that out. And if you want to get in touch with me here at the show, maybe you want to be a guest, maybe you want to come on and talk about your brand, it's info at menswearstyle.co.uk. Okay, here is that interview with August Bard Bringius. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce to the podcast co-founder of Asket, August Bard Bringius. How are you doing today, August? Thanks so much, Peter. Um, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, spring is uh, blossoming here in Stockholm, so uh, uh, moods are high, and yeah, I, I can't complain. Excellent, fantastic. So, August, please, for the uninitiated, give us a thumbnail sketch of you and the brand Asket. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm the um, co-founder, uh, CMO, and CTO of Asket. And um, Asket is a direct-to-consumer, online-only menswear brand with the slightly paradoxical mission of helping people buy less clothing. <laughs> Which must be a, a tough sell for any investor, right, looking to get into Asket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, once you look underneath the hood and, and see the long term, um, the long term plans, which is, you know, just creating, uh, creating more value, but at, um, uh, at a slower pace, um, there is a sound case uh, for it, you know, there, there's tons of brands and companies that have been doing good things with a strong uh, and similar ethos uh, before, you know, Patagonia being one of them. So um, it's just a different way of looking at um, at business and, and redefining the notion of a healthy and successful business away from, you know, the current uh, main metric, which is growth uh, at any cost, mm. to uh, more sound fundamentals. So, take me back a little bit, please, August. Where did you grow up? Education and kind of phase that into how you got us get off the ground. Sure. So, um, I'm Swedish, um, but I'm actually also a quarter German. I um, grew up uh, in several countries, actually. So, uh, born in southern Sweden, um, uh, and then my family moved on to Germany, uh, from there on to the United States, Washington, D.C., uh, from Washington back to Stockholm in Sweden, from Stockholm to Vienna, Austria, and then finally, when I got to have my own say, uh, I decided to go back to Stockholm um, to sort of um, settle down, find my roots, and, and study um, business and economics. Um, and that's kind of the 
the starting point for Ask It also because I met my co-founder Jacob um, on the first day, the very first introduction day of business school um, back in 2009. And I guess that we uh, we found ourselves sharing a, a, a similar passion for wanting to create something, uh, wanting to to build something from scratch, um, and not just you know follow the traditional business uh, graduate career paths of, of banking or, or management consulting. Uh, we did sort of try those out a little bit, um, but pretty quickly um, found our way back to uh, our ways back to. Um, to creating something uh, meaningful, something different. Um, so after a few years of, of working at startups also, um, during our studies, I, I was working at Klarna, uh, a, um, a Stockholm-based uh, globally operating um, e-commerce payment solution software, uh, and Jacob working for, among others, Zalando, the, the e-commerce giant. Um, we had picked up on the um, the growing direct to consumer uh, or, or DNVB digital native vertical brand wave that had started in the United States with brands like Warby Parker, Everlane, Bonobos, and saw that that could be a platform um, to solve a frustration that we've been feeling for a while, which was um, uh, a quite personal frustration with our own wardrobes. Uh, we would look at our wardrobes and we would find that, you know, we have hundreds of pieces of clothing. I think in, in Europe, in the Western world, uh, the average wardrobe uh, contains over 100 pieces of clothing, but you'll use only a fraction of them. I think it's it's as low as 20% um, of your clothing that is actually in, in constant use. Mm. And we found ourselves wondering why that is the case and trying to start analyzing um, why we love and use certain garments and why others are churned out of our daily rotation very, very quickly. Um, and our finding was that, you know, the garments that we actually use and love uh, all the time always have the same common den denominators. Um, they're timeless in style. Um, they're high quality so that they actually can be worn and, and, and washed and torn. Uh, they're comfortable and they have a great fit. Um, whereas the rest, the 80% that are churned out uh, of rotation very quickly, are mostly things that are bought on on impulse. Um, it was a trend piece. It was you know um, an expensive brand that had a 70% sale and you bought it despite the color being you know weird or, or the fit not actually being your uh, for you. Like band and, merch. And so, Every T-shirt that I bought at a concert. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I guess that has some kind of emotional value, you know. But most of the pieces that we amass have no um, emotional value. They're um, they go from being you know this a product of immense natural and human resources to waste within uh, one use, two uses, three uses maximum. Um, and and so our idea was that, you know, we wanted to make sure that we actually maximize the use of our wardrobe, uh, minimize the inefficiencies, and, and just have a wardrobe of garments that we actually love and use for years on end. Um, and, and being, you know, happier in those wardrobes, uh, both emotionally, but of course also economically. We spend an enormous amount of clothing that we don't end up using. And at the time, we, you know, uh, this was in about 2014 when we started sketching the idea of Ask It before launching in 2015. And at that time, we were very concerned with what we called the, the impossible equation of combining quality, fit, and price. 
Um, so we weren't actually super concerned with, um, you know, uh, we, I hate to use the word because it's so vague, but with sustainability um, or, or ethics or responsibility in clothing uh, for the simple reason that we were just average consumers at that time. We had no experience with, uh, within the apparel industry or, or within fashion. But as we started to sketch the solution to solve this equation of combining fit and, and high quality at an affordable, attainable price point, we started to build a business model that actually would also have the, a perfect foundation for slowing down consumption and increasing value and, and reducing inefficiencies and injustice in um, the fashion value chain. I see. That's interesting. And... I mean, you're so bang on with emotional clothing. The the biggest mistake I made when I was in my early 30s uh, was to invest in clothing that I thought would mean a lot to me over the years that I could never get rid of because I've made some investment and it's come on a journey with me. And now all these clothes are just hanging on that don't ever don't ever see the light of day, but then I'm torn. <laughs> I have that dichotomy of, well, I, don't, I can't throw it out. It's like, you know, culling the herd of your family. So, yeah. I mean, if I ever had kids, I would just tell them, look, just buy absolute playing, buy the essentials, don't buy anything with a picture of Roger Moore on it or whatever it is that you're into. <laughs> just go down the line of using it for utility and, you know, just and comfort. So, yeah, I think that's kind of, I, I'm kind of going around the houses, but you you can perhaps tell me that might be the ethos or the, the subtext yeah. to ask it, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it definitely is. And I think it's um, to some extent, it's about, you know, um, a level of maturity that you reach with, you know, um, age and, and just maturity. Uh, but to, uh, to another extent, it is also uh, contextual and, and symptomatic of changes in our society where we are now <clears throat> growing much more aware of the impacts of our consumption choices. Um, and so to go back to sort of the ethos and ask, uh, of Ask It and what we ended up with was, you know, to to solve this equation um, of fit, quality and price, we decided to do some fundamental changes to the fashion and apparel business model. The first one being abandoning seasonal collections in favor of building a single permanent collection. Because all those garments that we realized that we actually love and use over time They've been around forever. You know, you've seen them on JFK, on Marlon Brando, on Steve McQueen, on on, um, on all of these icons for, for decades. Uh, and so why is it so hard to just keep these pieces, mm. <laughs> you know, in, in the offering uh, and refine them and make them better over time instead of trying to reinvent them always? Uh, but the fashion industry is built on seasonal connect collections and the concept of constant renewal. It, it is the very fuel that drives the industry that and every part of the industry um, is currently still dependent on it. You need seasonal collections and, and constant renewal and novelty to have a reason to speak, to be featured in press. Press needs mm. it to have something to talk about. Stores need it to renew their offering to reattract customers to, co to come back into the stores. Yeah. Um, so, um, but the problem is that uh, you know uh, seasonal collections and, and and this constant renewal is basically you know, what we in consumer electronics call um, designed obsolescence, the term of actually designing things to become obsolete within a certain amount of time um, actually comes from fashion. We sell something and a few weeks after we say that this is no longer in trend to be socially acceptable, uh, you need to buy this new, you know, dusty pink T-shirt instead. Mm -hmm. And so 
we're, we're forcing consumers to replace garments that are perfectly good. Um, and we're fostering a mindset of, you know, um, garments being disposable rather than the investments that they should be. But so by abandoning seasonal collections, uh, not only do we remove an enormous pressure for constant renewal and time and resources spent on constant renewal, uh, you know, that means that we can focus on just one timeless essential at a time, perfecting a permanent collection of garments that are meant to be around forever. So there's no end to the resources that we can put into perfecting these garments over time. It also means that we don't need the markups to be able to sell these garments at a profit, even if we have a 70% end of season sale, because we will never have never have sales. These garments are around forever. Mm. And finally, with the permanent connection collection, instead of having, you know, multiple changes in styles and, and huge offering of styles, we can instead offer more sizes so we can tackle the size problem and the fit problem that we were addressing. Right. The only reason that we're used to, you know, five standard sizes excess to XL is because of, you know, manufacturing uh, convenience. Um, we need to keep things simple to, uh, for, to be able to predict, you know, sales and, and, and forecast size splits uh, according to demand and, and, and you know, uh, keep things simple. But with a permanent collection and not having, you know, a deadline and the end of season breathing down your neck, um, we can actually offer more and better sizes that are um, actually, you know, taking into account that people's bodies are built in different ways. Yeah. Um, and so with the permanent collection, we saw both a um, we avoid creating things that might become obsolete, um, basically intrinsically changing people's wardrobes, uh, you know, with the product as almost the Trojan horse. If something is so good and so timeless, you won't need to replace it. Um, and then we fix the sizing. And finally, we go direct to consumer and online only to cut out, you know, the whole wholesale fat, because essentially right now, if you go and buy your favorite brand um, on the high street somewhere, uh, what you're paying for is really just a fraction of the actual craftsmanship and, and material behind the product. Uh, because once that product is created, a brand will mark it up by 3x to sell it to a wholesaler, and the wholesaler will mark it up by another 3x to be able to cover uh, the wholesaler's costs. So you're ending up paying on average nine times the production cost. Um, and by skipping that whole wholesale step and, and all the physical stores uh, and that type of distribution going directly to the customer, we can create high quality, perfectly fitting garments at an attainable price point. And that's kind of the foundation. Nice. Well, that's um, that's pretty much as straightforward as it gets. And it's, there are so many myths and misuses within the fashion world. And I found this when I was running my fashion store, why we would insist on seasonal collections in the first place, especially in the UK when you... When it's just freezing cold 10 months of the year anyway, and then you have this tiny window of when the sun comes out, it's like, oh, great, let's just stock up and tell everyone to buy T-shirts, which will be the lowest price that you can get any margin on any clothing whatsoever. And yeah. again, when you mentioned the sizing, it would infuriate me to have this kind of block of sizing structure where we'd always order one, two, three, three, two, one. Exactly. Like, and... You know, that's like one extra small, two small, three medium. And I kind of fluctuate between extra small and small. And there would be nothing in the range for me. You know, I'd obviously sell yeah. onto the customer first. But then I'd get people of my frame come in and go, well, where are the smalls? Why aren't you catering for me? It's because, well, that's not how we kind of we're dictated to by so many other parts of the industry that it kind of leaves the end seller 
out of options in so many ways. So it's mm. it's refreshing to see a, a different approach to that from your end, anyway. So yeah, fast track a little bit, please, um, August. And when you're out of Klarna, um, you've you've kind of graduated. Uh, I sorry, I might have screwed those up. But you're now thinking of setting up Asket. What's what are the time frames here? What dates are we looking at? Yeah. So we're looking at um, the end of 2014, where Jacob and I are still in business school, uh, studying for our in our final year of our master's degree. Uh, we're starting to sketch the the business plans to um, to set up Asket, basically. And then in January 2015, we finally decide to, you know, just rip the bandaid off, uh, register the corporation, and force ourselves to get started with this. Um, and just a few months afterwards in April, uh, 2015, we launch the t-shirt. Uh, I think the pitch at that time was, um, the search for the perfect t-shirt uh, and a t-shirt in 15 sizes. Um, and we launched that actually on Kickstarter, um, to assess the interest in, you know, solving uh, what we at that time only knew to be a personal frustration with our wardrobes and, and with finding high quality, timeless, well-fitting garments. Um, and pretty quickly on, we, we got confirmation. So I think we were, our project was funded within um, 18 hours. Um, and uh, within three weeks time, we had achieved more than four and a half times um, the pre-orders that we needed to fund our first production. Uh, because that was the challenge. We didn't have any investors. We didn't have our cash, any cash ourselves. Um, uh, remember, we were students still studying, actually. So we needed uh, a pre-order to both assess initial interest, um, get some first loyal customers, and help um, you know um, fund our first uh, our first production round. Um, and and from there on, in the summer of 2015, uh, in the end of July, beginning of August, we launched um, our website with just one product, uh, the T-shirt, available in four colors, white, gray melange, dark navy, and black, uh, but in, in 15 sizes each. And uh, and from there on, we, we gradually expanded uh, the permanent collection, uh, really one garment at a time, um, putting all our focus on on just piece by piece building a, a perfect uh, wardrobe. And so are these, what fabrics are you including here and what's the vetting process? Are you saying, well, you know, this Sea Island cotton has to be the best fabric for this. This would be the yeah. most lasting. So what, what kind of factors are, are being thrown yeah. in here? So from the very beginning, um, durability was really key. Um, you know, um, as a customer, particularly, you know, if, if you're a young student, you're used to buying things that you can can afford. And, and, and mostly that's just the high street offering and, and you'll see stuff shrink and you'll see your uh, your T-shirts pill and and fade. And, and we just wanted to eliminate all that and create, you know, um, a zero compromise wardrobe staple. So durability and, um, you know, color fastness, fiber quality, we're really at the core of our um, material evaluation process. Um, and when it comes to manufacturing, um, we didn't want to cut any corners, of course. So from a quality point of view, we started out in Portugal, which has a, a phenomenal heritage within textile engineering, particularly within cotton and jersey. Um, also shirting, but particularly within uh, within jersey, which is the fabric that you normally use for uh, T-shirts and sweatshirts and, and, and hoodies. Um 
and we personally vetted the factories. We we visited them um, because you know we still had no clue about uh, about the fashion supply chain, how things actually came together. Um, you know, even even though maybe you don't think stuff comes just off a conveyor belt or something, it actually you know requires a trip down the supply chain to understand the enormous complexity of um of clothing and, and clothing manufacturing and, and how extremely manual it is um and uh, the vast amount of individual uh, people um working in the supply chain at, at every step of the process um and that was just um an enormous learning phase for us um and while we started um even as we started we we realized that we needed to be transparent we wanted to be a very transparent brand um we've taken some inspiration from brands like everlane uh, who you know pivoted the um or coined the term radical transparency or one of the companies that coined it and in the beginning that was kind of a hygiene factor for us you know if you're starting a brand in 2015 um of course, you want to be ethical uh, and do it right, uh, or at least that's what what we felt like. And to be transparent, um, we of course had to, um, you know, open the hood and, and explore and, and learn ourselves because again, we had no experience. And what we realized was that you know, transparency in the very beginning was for us a means to manifest quality digitally because we were selling online only. Um, so to explain how we were getting, you know, a, a 90 euro, uh, or, or say 70 pound t-shirt for a third of the price, we had to open up our factories and show what it actually takes to create this garment to give a sense of that craftsmanship and the quality. Um, and, and so we decided to open up our factories, document them and put them on our website. And, that, and at the by same the way, time, that looks fantastic. I'm sorry to over talk over you, but when I was on your website earlier, this is um, by by far the most traceable, transparent, <laughs> you know, kind of open book part of any industry or any fashion industry that I've seen. So you can go into the, the trouser fabric mill, the trouser sewing factory, the belt factory. There's pictures. I mean, it's just short of virtual tours. It's it's so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's no stone unturned and there's no lack of confidence. I think this is what's quite key when i when i was working on e-commerce it was always you had to get the consumer to the gateway with zero friction but you also had to mm. give them the utmost confidence that what they're buying has come from somewhere um or you could actually see the process uh, you know just and what you've done here is just basically the blueprint i think for what every brand should be doing with regards to their traceability so thanks uh, so much no no thank you <laughs> it, look, it looks great no, I thank you thank you and um and yeah I, I mean as i was saying um this was kind of a hygiene factor for us when we started um and a way to manifest quality and provide confidence in the product um and on the other spectrum apart from opening up the factories we decided to you know from the get-go also open up our pricing uh so not only show what goes into creating the product in terms of all the processes and the complexity in the manufacturing facilities, but actually also disclose the exact cost of labor, um, of manufacturing, of um, material, and of, of transport. So with that, we had kind of explained quality digitally and also explained the, the value that you were getting and, and what this product would have costed if uh, we would sell through wholesale distribution. Okay. And, and that was the starting point for 
our work with transparency and uh, and traceability. But as we started to you know visit more and more factories, um, for every place we visited, it really just struck us how how immensely complex the the creation of of a garment is, a garment that we take for granted and ever too often today um, see as a disposable rather than the investment it should be. And, you know, um, after a few months, we, we started to sort of really dig into it and, and realize that, you know, a T-shirt will create what will require 2,700 liters of water um, to from farming all the way to to getting into the hands of the customers. Mm. That's enough to keep a person alive for over four years. A pair of denim will require 15,000 liters of water, 35 kilos of CO2. And um, it's just... It will also be about 10 washes for my girlfriend's hair, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, there's maybe, a lot maybe of things, 15. Uh... Maybe 15. I don't know. It's kind of between the two. <laughs> yeah. No. And I mean, it's there's so much. Everything we do has an impact. Right. And I, I think that um, if you try to understand, I mean, it, we want people and we want ourselves to be as conscious as possible to, to make you know better decisions. But um, at the end of the day, um, you can't try and fix everything, right? Or you're going to go crazy. Um, so what we're trying to do now is really to fix um, clothing, our clothing consumption habits and the vast strain that they are having on people and planet. Um, so, you know, after a few years, we, we kind of felt that, I think this was in 2017, you know, um, we eventually decided that, you know, uh, we realized that the factories that we were showing and were visiting weren't um, all the factories involved, even showing, you know, the, the, all the ones on our website right now, there's so much more to it. There's also the sewing thread, there's the hang tags, there's the labels, there's the button factories. It is so complex. Um, and so to set you know um to set a better standard uh for understanding the complexity of garments and appreciating them better and making better decisions we decided to introduce in 2018 um, full traceability which is our internal standard uh, requiring us to trace our break down our garments into every single component every single fiber and trace them back to the roots and then disclose that information online on our website on each product page, as well as in a very physical non-high-tech label directly in the garment. So where our, the normally you know the the care label is, there's also a full traceability label. So even if you don't care about this, uh, when you sort of you know uh, you, you wash your first ASK T-shirt or you wash your, your first ASK garment for the first time. You will see this, and, and and whether or not you're particularly interested in it, our hope is that it will nudge us into more awareness of what it takes to create our clothing, and so that the next time you buy a piece of clothing, maybe not from us, um, you will ask yourself, you know, is made in Bangladesh, made in Romania, made in, in Italy, really the full story, and is the price that I'm paying, uh, particularly in, you know, on the high street really fair and, and realistic considering what I've learned from from what it takes to create Askets products. Hmm. Um, and, and so this was really the a pivotal moment for us when we launched this undertaking to get our entire product line to 100% traceability um, and 
quite unprecedented in in the fashion industry. Um, and August, has this um, had any any effect on your contemporaries? The reason I ask this, I mean, I see a lot of crowdfunding and kickstarting campaigns. I think watches were a huge thing that started this. Um, you know, kind of cutting out the middleman, and then I thought, crikey, when that first started happening, I thought the likes of the luxury watch market have really got to look over their shoulders mm. because obviously their prices are completely riding the wave of their brand name. And once people realise mm. that, you know, you can pump out these watches of, you know, not similar quality, but you know, there's such a gulf in what you can actually take as a slice. Yeah. Uh, do you think other brands are you looking around now and going, oh, these guys are doing something similar to us or this this has changed. I can see that we've made a difference over here because these guys are now implementing the same strategy. Have you noticed anything like that? With regards to, to traceability and transparency specifically or, or the direct-to-consumer model? Um, both, please. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I mean, we've seen the direct-to-consumer model um and sort of the um, formerly called affordable luxury, which is now such a you know uh, watered down uh, term, uh, but but we've seen that concept multiply um, across uh, various sectors um, and verticals, um, and also within um, the fashion industry. Um, so I think that um, uh, that's definitely a. A, a mega trend and we know from the bigger brands also that they increasingly are relying on their own channels uh, maybe not in the you know altruistic uh, way with it with you know an altruistic motive to actually be able to lower prices and make quality more attainable um, but simply because they have higher margins in their own channels so you know we have big brands like Nike that are increasingly shutting down their wholesale channels because they're so powerful that they can you know redirect um, customers directly to themselves where they, they earn more money mm-hmm. um, but there's also a wave of micro brands and, and, and smaller you know creative um, brands that strive for change that are deploying this model in order to create better value um, and um, have more control uh, and responsibility over the entire value chain uh, and I think that's um, um, that's a positive development, uh, definitely. Um, with regards to transparency and traceability, um, I think that we were among the first to do this. And if we go back to sort of 2015 when we started, or even 2018 when we launched full um, traceability as a concept, the fashion industry had been under scrutiny for some time, um, mainly um, due to unethical um, working conditions. You know, we had sweatshop stories in the 90s already, in the 80s. Um, eventually, the Rana Plaza building collapsed in 2013 that killed almost 1,200 factory workers working for Western High Street brands. And that really sort of raised concerns about the working conditions uh, that are, you know, comparable to, to slavery in, in some developing um, countries where uh, Western brands have sought to place their production to be competitive uh, price-wise. But the tragedy is that, you know, it really took until 2018, 2019 to really start a, a movement of global awareness uh, with regards to the impact of clothing consumption and production and now it's even now it's not actually so much about the um the working conditions but much more about the environmental impact of fashion which is 
absolutely crucial also and, and extremely important. Um, but but it is ironic that, you know, not until climate change became real and, you know, you and I can actually feel that it's getting warmer every summer and we're reading about, you know, wildfires even in Sweden, which is just like crazy. Not until we in our, you know, safe places here in the Western world in, in developed economies start to feel the heat, do we actually consider thinking about the impact of our consumption choices. Um, so while it is great that um, transparency and, and, um, and ethics and the climate change impacts of the clothing industry is now really a major topic, um, it is, you know, if I'm being cynical, um, it is dark that it, it really had to go this far until um, this became a global topic and 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 brands across uh, the world um, actually tried to do something about it. And even so, um, right now, you know, there is, uh, excuse my French, a shitstorm of greenwashing going on because, you know, not everyone um, is communicating and, and talking about sustainability uh, purely altruistically. Um, there is obviously a lot of money to be made in, uh, in trying to position yourself, uh, yourself favorably, um, given that consumer demand is now asking for um, uh, more ethical products. Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I remember when that factory folded in on itself and I also remember the Stacey Dooley documentary I think that was last year um, I think she did something similar where she was going around the high street stopping people on the streets and telling them the t-shirt they're wearing and then behind her was like these kegs like you saying like 200 odd thousand gallons of water to wash one single t-shirt so she did this kind mm. of huge guerrilla marketing around that and then you know you have David Attenborough's the dying whale with the plastic in the mouth and all of a sudden mm. people started really reflecting on what they're doing and the the carbon footprint they're having i mean i know was it fashion mm. is only second to oil for being the biggest world polluter yeah. you know and you put yeah. your polyester jumper on landfill that's going to outlive you <laughs> you know that's not going to yeah. disintegrate yeah. over time so it, no. it is certainly a time for people to be more aware um yeah let's august it's been wonderful talking to you thanks so much again for taking time out of the day the website Asket.com, that's A-S-K-E-T.com. Uh, what have we got coming out in terms of what have we got to look forward to? Yeah, so um, so as I just mentioned, you know, uh, we introduced full traceability um, two years ago. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of people associate us with being, you know, a sustainable brand. Um, but sustainability really isn't that easy. And traceability and knowing where your garments actually come from is not the same thing as garments being sustainable or having a, a low environmental footprint. So what we're doing now is that now that we know exactly where our garments come from down to the last, you know, fiber and, and, and button, um, we're starting to measure the impact of our garments because with um, all the certifications and you know green labels and whatnot going out um, right, right now it is really 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 tough for consumers and for brands to make the right choices so what we want to do is to set you know a new standard in terms of transparency 
um, uh, which is actually being accountable for our impact and being able to disclose our impact, you know, very frankly, this amount of, uh, of water, this amount of CO2, this amount of energy goes into creating this garment. And um, from there on, really being able to optimize um, our own supply chain, uh, decarbonize it as far as possible, um, and then make sure that we maximize the lifetime of our garments um, and, and you know reduce the relative impact per use of these garments. So um, it's a huge undertaking and it's going to take us a few more years uh, to get there, but that's what we're currently working on to really provide a, a zero compromise uh, wardrobe. Awesome. And you're fighting the good fight. Thanks so much, August. Take care of yourself out there. Again, the website, askit.com, the place to go and the social channels as well. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you can follow them. Just type in Ask It into your smartphone there and they should come up and you can have a look at the products firsthand. Again, thanks, Ask, I was gonna say, thanks, ask It. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, August. <laughs> Take care. Thanks so much, Peter, for the opportunity. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, August. Such an insightful interview. Those are my favourite ones where the clever people do the talking. That's it from me. Well, I should say thank you for listening and taking part, for sharing and liking and reviewing on iTunes. It does mean a lot to us. And stay safe. And remember, it's only fashion, people, and you're never fully dressed without a smile. Thank you.